and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The kingdom of God isn't like earthly kingdoms. The harder we try to fit it into our expectations, the more disappointed we'll be. Ryan Brown, Director of Discipleship, finishes the series Hidden Kingdom with this sermon entitled The Growth of the Kingdom, which covers Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 32. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. It's my wonderful privilege to introduce Ryan Brown. Many of you know Ryan. He was our worship pastor last weekend. He's the pastor of Life on Life Discipleship, and Ryan and I go way back. I'm not going to say how many years, Ryan, but I was the middle school pastor when Ryan came through middle school and high school, and um, I remember you at Rush, and giving leadership, but I remember you at Rush. You know, there are a number of times when I see former students um, in the hall or just out and about, and I'll think to myself, wow, God, you have surprised me at what you have done. (laughs) So all the parents of teenagers, you have hope. You have hope. But I will say this about Ryan, is that even back then, uh, we saw leadership in him as a high schooler, and he's, he brings such great value to our team. He's a great leader, and you're really going to be blessed as he brings the word. Let me pray for him right now. Father, we do thank you for Ryan, and we thank you for who he is in you, his love for you, his love for the gospel. Thank you how um, seeds have been sown in his heart and have multiplied so many times over. Father, we pray, would you give us uh, listening hearts and listening ears? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. As as we dive in, let's hear the word read. Uh, Zion Brown, not Ryan Brown, Zion Brown, our uh, high school guys discipleship coordinator is going to read us the word. Good morning, church. Our scripture reading comes from Mark 4, beginning verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, or is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, prepare our hearts and ask God to work on them using this prayer. It comes from John chapter 6 together. Father, you give us the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people 
who are gathered and who hunger and thirst for your word. Amen. So um, Chip mentioned that I was here in high school and middle school, which really means there's just a lot of blackmail sitting out in that room. So some of you know my story, and if you can get over that, then hopefully this will be helpful to you. But it's one thing particular in high school that got to me uh, was martial arts movies. They had a bad influence on me. I'm going to go ahead and say, um, don't try this at home. So I was thinking, these movies are awesome. I need to become a stuntman. And so in order to do that, I've got to figure out how to do a backflip. So I did what any wise high schooler would do. No training, and just try it. And so what I did is I thought, okay, jump as hard as you can and throw your head back. And so here's how it looked for a long time. Okay, 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 okay. So I have a friend who actually has a video. It's like five minutes long, and it's all of me just doing this. Okay. Uh, so eventually, the, the culmination of that video, and you can't find it. There, it's not there. You can't find it. Uh, the culmination of that video is me doing a three-quarter back belly flop onto the ground. Not safe as thankfully God was gracious and I didn't break my neck. <laughs> but that was my instinct. Jump as hard as you can and throw your head back. Some of you are like cheerleaders or gymnasts, and you're just like cringing inside right now because you know what I learned later. When I met somebody who actually knew what they were talking about, could spot me on mats and help me learn. And so what he told me was you need to jump up, straight up, as high as you can. Don't throw your head back, pull your knees up, and your feet should land in the same spot that they left. And I thought, nah, -uh. <laughs> there is no way. That sounds terrifying. If I don't throw my head back, I'm going to break myself. But he said, I can spot you. This is how you do it. And so after my normal five-minute routine of terror, he's spotting me. I jump, and I land straight on my feet, standing up like nothing had happened. <laughs> wow. That was completely opposite of everything I thought I should have done. Yet it was the thing that was actually the right way to do it, completely counterintuitive to me. And when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, the way that he talks about it is completely counterintuitive. Because when we think about a kingdom and how a kingdom should come into the world, we've got lots of thoughts. But Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom comes. It might even feel scary, but I want you to see it come in a very different way. So when Jesus uses the language of kingdom in the first century in a Roman, Roman province of Israel, he's not using distinctly religious language. We don't use the word kingdom as much anymore unless we're talking about religious stuff. But at that time, if, if you're thinking about just Jewish history, you've seen a lot of kingdoms over time, Egyptian, Persian, Babylonian, Greek, Roman, you've got a king or an emperor or a pharaoh or something, there, there's a leader and there's a kingdom that is spreading, it is conquering other lands and taking them in. So Jesus isn't trying to use fancy language right now. He's using very normal, common language. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here and what parables do. They invite us to use our imagination with the common language that he's using. So, when people would have thought about a kingdom, they would have thought about politics, military, land borders, rulers, wealth, power. So, when we hear him talking about that, it's okay for us to think about those same types of things because he's speaking in common language. So, how does a kingdom come? How does one kingdom take over other kingdoms? Unfortunately, we're seeing that happen right now. It's all over the news. Powerful military, long battles, a person who wants more power. That's how we see kingdoms come, right? And that's not far from the minds of the disciples or anybody who's listening to Jesus because they saw the Greeks do it. Recently, they saw the Romans do it. They're seeing how kingdoms come. And so Jesus in these parables is telling us that these kingdoms, come, these kingdoms come in a way that you don't expect. His kingdom comes in a way you don't expect. It is very different and even counterintuitive to what you would think. So what expectations is he challenging? At least a few we know of just from other places in the Bible. When Jesus is talking to Pilate right before he goes to the cross, Pilate's asking him about his kingdom. And here's what he says in John 18. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Right? That makes sense, right? If a kingdom's going to take over another kingdom, you fight for it. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't look like that. And then another time, he's telling a parable to his disciples because they have an expectation of the kingdom. In Luke 19, he said, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because they had an expectation. They were near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is not how it comes. We assume that we know how kingdoms grow, and we know that we know how kingdoms work. But when we have the wrong expectation, things go wrong. How many marital fights have you been in that involve wrong expectations? Only 99% of them, right? You have a wrong expectation, you get frustrated. You have a wrong expectation, you get disappointed or angry. And so Jesus is dealing with these expectations by coming with something very counterintuitive because it's not what we expect. When we see his kingdom and don't just go by our intuition, it's amazing what happens when we lean into trusting him. We begin to have eyes to see how his kingdom is coming. So these kingdom parables, there's probably, you could break these down into three or four. Uh, they're, they're, they're ways of saying the same thing, but they're coming at it from different angles. We don't have time to go into an entire theology of God's kingdom, but we're going to see what these parables do to help us understand and how they challenge our expectations. But they're meant to engage our imagination. He's using common language to bring us in. So we'll start here with the lamp and the measures. It was the first uh, couple that you heard read. In verse 21, it says, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Did you use your imagination? Think about it. It's a dark room, completely dark. Somebody walks in with a lamp. What does he do? He comes over and he slides it under the couch. That doesn't make sense, does it? No, that's the point Jesus is trying to make. This lamp is, is, has the intention to light up the room, not to be hidden. But there's something really interesting about this parable in Mark specifically, because Jesus uses this parable, same parable, in the other Gospels, but he makes a different point with it. He's using this parable to make a specific point in this context. If you look at the original language, it's interesting. There, there is a change in this parable, how he tells it in the others, that we don't necessarily see in the English, but it's not so much is a lamp brought, but what it actually says in the Greek is the lamp comes. Does the lamp come? It is specifically talking about a thing. In John 1, Jesus is introduced in the gospel as the light of the world. And I think that's what Jesus is picking up on here in this parable. He is the lamp that comes. And it says, for is anything hidden except to be made manifest? That's something that's going to happen in the future, a secret that will be revealed. And so what's happening is Jesus is basically coming, but he's saying right now he's hidden. What does that mean? Jesus is God himself. Do we know what, what Jesus really looks like? Well, we get a couple glimpses in Matthew 17. Jesus takes a few of his disciples up to the top of a mountain. It says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And then we see again when Jesus comes into his kingdom in full, and we see him in heaven, the end of Revelation 1, verse 16, it says, His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When Jesus was born, the night in Bethlehem didn't light up like the sun was shining in that little stable, did it? Philippians 2 shows us how he came. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. We don't see his full glory radiating off his face. We see a boy born in a manger who grew up in a blue-collar job and showed us the character of God. Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Um, you know, it's, if you haven't, it's the, some executive of a company goes and works several jobs in the company, but, but he or she goes in disguise. Why? Because if, if you show up as the executive and everybody knows who you are, they're going to treat you pretty different, right? They're going to do their job differently. Jesus came as a man. If he came in power with a radiating face, I don't think we would have seen how people actually would have responded to him. We would have seen power and glory and majesty and say, I want to be next to that. But instead, he came 
and lived as a man with the character of God. And we saw a lot of people reject him, which is pretty exposing to what our hearts are actually like. If I don't see advantage, then is it worth my time? He will come fully in his glory. Later on in Philippians 2, it says that when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for a time, he did come hidden. Did we notice? The religious people didn't. The rulers of other nations didn't. Even his disciples ran away from him when he went to the cross. So, the second parable here will help us understand that a little bit more. In verse 24, it says, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. By the way, that, that was like a Jewish saying that you would hear a lot in the household. That, so he's just using common language. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So it's kind of like the anti-Robin Hood, right? Steal from the rich, give to the poor. No, he's saying whoever has, you'll get more. And whoever doesn't have, you'll even lose that. And you're like, that doesn't sound right, does it? Well, think about this. This is on the heels of the parable of the sower. If you didn't hear the sermon on that last week, go listen to that. But the, the application at the end of that sermon is to pay attention to the word. And then here we have it two times at the end of verse uh, 23 and the beginning of verse 24. It's pay attention, hear the word. And so what I think is happening is he's helping us understand the end of that parable. If the seed is sown on good soil, that means that soil that has heard the word and is fertile. If that happens, then that will grow. And you will see more and more as it grows. If it's a seed that falls on the path or the rocky soil or the thorns, you may see a little growth or none at all, but it's got no roots. And what it has will be taken away because there's no roots there. And so in a sense, that's what he's saying. He's concluding the parable by saying, if you hear this word, pay attention. Because this is where it all hinges. If Jesus is the light of the world, then everything for the rest of your life, everything that the kingdom is based on, comes down to who do you say Jesus is. It's really not worth going forward at all unless you make that decision for these next few parables because that's where this all starts. The seed that is sown is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know who that is, the rest won't make sense. C.S. Lewis uh, had this illustration in his book, Mere Christianity. If you want to investigate the faith of Christianity, that's a great book to read. But he says, Jesus doesn't give us this option to be neutral about who he is. He said, honestly, Jesus gives us three options for how we could think about him. Number one, he was a liar. He said, I'm the son of God who can save the world, and he knew he wasn't, and he's one of the greatest deceivers in all of history. Number two, you might think he's a lunatic. He said he was the son of God, but he was actually a crazy person who needed medical attention. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful 20th century British language would have said it this way, he was no brighter than a poached egg. He said, so if Jesus is a liar 
or he's a lunatic, you would be a moron to follow him. But if he's Lord, if he is the king of kings, then you would be a fool of fools not to follow him. So that's where it starts. Who do you believe Jesus is? That's the seed that is sown. If you hear it, more will be added to you. You will grow in his kingdom and his kingdom will grow in you. So who is he? With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. I love how Howard Hendricks says it. In the New Testament understanding, to know and not to do is not to know at all. If you say Jesus is the king of the world and your life doesn't reflect that in any way, do you really know it? It's worth thinking about. But once that seed takes root, that gospel in our hearts, it begins to grow. And that's what the next parable helps us understand. Think about it. Uh, they're thinking with kingdom expectation, one nation conquering another nation, powerful ruler, powerful kingdom. And so Jesus comes in verse 26, and he says, the kingdom of God is. And I'm like, oh, man, we're finally going to hear what this is. This is exciting. We're going to hear how we're going to conquer, how we're going to get freedom from the Romans. This is exciting. So Jesus then gives the most anticlimactic statement you can imagine. The kingdom of God is as a ski, uh, sower scatters seed on the ground, and then he goes to sleep. Wait, what now? Weren't you supposed to say a nation was going to come in with power and conquer another nation? Or, Jesus, you're going to work miracles and wipe everybody out? But you just say somebody put seed on the ground and went to bed. Why is that a good thing to hear? Jesus, what are you talking about? He says, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he doesn't know how. The seed produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Then when the grain is ripe, can you feel the disciples just kind of falling asleep? Yeah, we know how plants grow, Jesus. What's the point? And at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We're, we're spoiled in some extent, right? We've seen YouTube videos, like time-lapse videos of something growing, right? It's cool. You know, we see the ground, and then it grows up, and we see it sprout and blossom and all that kind of stuff. But time-lapse has ruined us from reality. My daughter came home from kindergarten with a pot and put some seeds in it. And you know what happened? It sat there like dirt for a long time. <laughs> and Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom looks like. You throw seed on the ground and you're staring at dirt for a while. Fun. That's not this nation with a powerful leader conquered another nation. This is completely counter to what the disciples are probably expecting, right? I love to think about what that seed is, though. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Greek. And then Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The seed of the gospel in fertile soil will grow. God will do it. Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? That was one of 
his colleagues who preached the gospel in Corinth. What then is Paul, their servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. What God's saying about his kingdom is that when the seed hits fertile soil, he promises to grow it. That seed of the gospel is powerful and transformative in your life and in the lives of others. Sure, we can nurture it. We can be those who sow the seed. We can be those who water the seed. But he will do the growth work even when we don't see it. Even when it's some roots sprouting out of a seed and all we're looking at is dirt. We're thinking about helping others grow. (laughs) We're thinking about our children. Longing for what maturity would look like both as humans and also as those made in the image of God. And it seems like sometimes we're just looking at a pot of dirt and nothing's happening. God brings the growth. Plant the seed. Water the seed. Are you involved in investing in others in discipleship to help them grow? God brings the growth. Water, nourish, plant the seed. God brings the growth. When you look at your own life, is it discouraging? God, I really thought I'd be way farther along by now. I think it's interesting how he tells this parable. He kind of goes into painstaking detail, right? First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, then when it's ripe. He goes step by step. It's painfully slow, but I think what's happening is he is inviting us to embrace the process. God cares about the process of our growth, not just the end of it. And he is involved all the way through. Our growth is not necessarily linear, but often our growth is realizing, I am not where God has called me to be. I'm going to repent and run to him. And in that place where it feels like we're going backwards, he might actually be growing us further. Growth takes time, but he is committed to completing the work he has started in you. Growth is from the Lord, and he promises. So God's kingdom, it comes through individuals as that seed grows in our lives and in the fertile soil of our hearts. But we can also see as more and more people come into the kingdom, we start to see the kingdom look more visible in the world around us, right? And I think in the mustard seed parable, he's helping us see a little bit more about that visible kingdom of God through his people. He says it this way, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a mustard seed, a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds in the earth. When it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So you're expecting, again, a powerful nation to come and to conquer. What Jesus is saying is, my kingdom, you might miss it. It is so small, you might not even notice. 
Now, scientifically, a mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, but this, is, this, again, was a proverb that would have been common in the first century. If you're talking about something small, you talk about a mustard seed. So he's speaking of it proverbially, not scientifically, because it's the common language. But he's saying the comparison between what you see and expect and what becomes the reality is significant. I'm going to try not to geek out really hard here, but this, this last part of the, of the passage when it says it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. I don't know if the disciples would have caught this, but I think Jesus was saying that on purpose because there's two other places in the Bible where it talks about a tree with large branches and the birds coming in, and it's talking about kingdoms. So I think Jesus is drawing on that cultural understanding of, of a kingdom. As a matter of fact, Kingdoms were often compared to trees. That wasn't unusual. So we see it in Daniel chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he asks Daniel to interpret it. And in the dream, it's about a big cedar that grows tall, and there's birds resting in the, net, in the branches. And then it gets cut down. And Daniel says, this, king, this tree is you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's your kingdom. Also bad news coming. But we're not getting into that right now. And then we see it again in Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel 17, it's about the kingdom of Egypt, like a vine that's growing up and it's spreading out its branches. But what God is saying through Ezekiel is he's going to cut off the top of a cedar and he's going to go to a mountain and he's going to plant it. And here's what it says in Ezekiel 7, uh, 17. On the mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it will bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches." Birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. So in both Daniel and in Ezekiel, the birds nesting is a symbol. It's a symbol for a kingdom that is so expansive that other nations become a part of it, that other kingdoms come under that one big kingdom. And so I think what Jesus is saying when he's talking about this mustard tree that grows up and spreads out branches and birds come in, is he's saying this kingdom is not going to come as a big, powerful nation. But it's going to become so expansive that all nations of the world will come into it. It doesn't come through one nation. It is not limited by one nation. It is bigger than all. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 7 makes it very clear. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is that mustard tree with the branches spread out and every nation coming in to find rest there. So what's Jesus saying? I like this chart. It helps me uh, because there was an expectation for what a Messiah would look like. If we could throw that chart up there, there's an expectation of what he should be. He might come as a conqueror. He's going to be a religious leader. But what do we see when we see Jesus? We see somebody who's born in poverty. We see somebody who grows up with not much to be known about him. He works a blue-collar job, as I said earlier. And then when it seems like things are finally coming to a head, he dies 
at the hands of both a Jewish nation and a Roman Empire. So everybody had an expectation of what this conquering king would conquer. He disappointed their expectation deeply in his humiliation. Yet at the same time that disappointment happened, it created what would later be the seed of this line we read in Revelation 7, that salvation belongs to our God. Because what actually happened in his humiliation was his exaltation. In his humiliation, he died. And in dying, he actually conquered the greatest kingdom that was against us. Sin and death itself. What looked like just a disappointing end to a promising start ended up being the greatest act of a conquering king in the history of the universe. He took on the greatest enemy that we ever face that is inside of us. He took on our sin. The thing that would keep us out of the kingdom, he took that penalty on himself so that he could invite us into the kingdom and we could live and flourish there. That's what the king conquered. That's far greater than what we expect. And then when he rose from the dead, he conquered the penalty of sin, which is death itself, which means this kingdom doesn't rise and fall like any other kingdom in the world. It makes it an everlasting kingdom where we can flourish for all of time with people from all nations and tribes and tongues. This kingdom is far bigger than what we would expect when we see that little mustard seed in our hand. Seems small, it seems unseen, but it's actually much, much bigger. In the time Jesus came into the world, they would have expected a king to come in power over other nations. And they were disappointed. What they got was a king that conquered the most horrific of unseen realities, evil itself, and it started with us. He'll come again. And he'll be revealed, face shining like the sun, and we will get to worship him in the splendor of his glory without fear or shame before him. But until then, this kingdom is hidden. Until then, we might not realize what he's really doing in our lives and in the world. The last two parables, the growing seed, and the mustard seed, they actually don't have any commands. They don't tell us to do something. And we really like stuff to do, don't we? But they're challenging something. You know, the only command we have in all three of these parables is pay attention. Pay attention and hear the word. Because if you hear it, you'll realize that God is doing something that maybe you don't notice if you're not paying attention. So if we pay attention, maybe we'll see something different. When we look around at the world right now, it feels like chaos, and for some of us, it just feels like we're losing. What do you think the disciples felt when they put Jesus up on the cross after arresting him? They look around at this world and like, this feels like chaos, and I think we're losing. As a matter of fact, he's dead. I think we lost. <laughs> that loss was the greatest victory in all of history. So what do you see when you look around? Do you see the kingdoms of the world and think we got no chance? Or do you look around and you see a kingdom that's like a mustard seed that's taking root and growing everywhere? 
See, God promises to do it. He doesn't ask you to do it. As a matter of fact, there is no place in the Bible where it calls us to grow His kingdom. We're called to seek His kingdom. Paul calls us fellow workers in His kingdom. But God says, I bring the kingdom. We're called to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. But that's a request to God for something He will do. So what does that mean for us? That means when we look around and we see chaos, we're ready to jump as hard as we can and throw our head back, right? But Jesus says, no, that's not the way I've called you to live in my kingdom. I don't want you to bring the kingdom like other people bring kingdoms through power and might and domination. As a matter of fact, he says it explicitly in Matthew 20. But Jesus called to him and said, you know that the, Gentile, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great in the kingdom must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must also be your slave. Why? Because even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, our intuition... I'm going to jump and throw my head back because that's how it feels right. I see how other kingdoms come. I'm going to use some of their stuff to make sure God's kingdom comes. But here's what happens. Sometimes we throw out the character that God calls us to live in as his citizens of his kingdom. He calls us into his kingdom. Do you remember the end of the parable of the sowers? It bears fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. What is that fruit? What does it look like? Well, I know of one place that the Bible talks about fruit in the lives of His people. Galatians 5, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We say, I want to bring the kingdom through power, through coercion, and we throw out the very things that God says are the fruit of His kingdom. We throw out godly character because we're afraid and God's not meeting our expectations. What happens is we end up not building God's kingdom at all. Even though we might put the banner of it over what we're doing. When the gospel takes root and it grows in our lives, it bears fruit. And that fruit touches the lives of other people. You know, the first fruit of the Spirit that all the others are, are basically an outworking of is love. So God calls us to engage the world as citizens of His kingdom with love, sowing the seeds of the gospel, nurturing it, watching it grow. We all have different spheres of influence that God has put us in, but His kingdom is going to come a different way than the other kingdoms come. It's going to come as He bears fruit in our lives and through us spreads the good news. Now, that doesn't mean we just have to figure out how to work up better character over and over and over again. It means we look at the one who brought the kingdom and see how he did it. In humility, as a servant, he laid down his life as a ransom for me and you. That's how his kingdom comes. That's how we bring the seed of the kingdom to others. We lay down our lives and love for others. We sow the message of the gospel, but we also trust, we trust that he will do it. His kingdom will come. 
There aren't questions about that. There's no maybe. There's no we hope so. These parables make it clear. His kingdom will come slower than you expect, and it will be less visible and less powerful, so to speak, than you expect. But it will come, and it will be so grand that it will bring all nations in, and it will be a kingdom that's based on the glory of the Son who loves us and gives his life for us. So for some of us, we can just take a deep breath and relax a little bit can stop trying to jump and throw our head back as hard as we can and do something counterintuitive and trust that his kingdom is going to come through his people, but primarily as he brings the growth. Jesus has no power struggle. He will bring his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom will come. We thank you that it is coming right now. In all of our hearts, you're doing something. But Lord, we would love to see that kingdom grow and grow and grow. So Lord, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come. And we ask that your will would be done. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you brought a kingdom in a way that we would have never expected to win our hearts and our lives and to secure us forever before your throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.